0: All right, y'all, good morning. Good to be with you all. It's been a little bit since I've had a chance to be here. It's good to be home. Uh, I will say this, uh, if if I've not met you, I know Emily said she's met a few guests this morning, and I know every week we've got some folks that are here visiting with us. Let me just say I would love to meet you as well. My name is Rob, and I'm the lead pastor, one of two teaching pastors, along with Lloyd. We alternate Typically, we've got some others that, that uh, step in from time to time and do a great job teaching as well. And I know it's kind of a, a, a large ask to say, come back after you've already left church to come back to a picnic. But it, we don't get to do this very often. And so especially if you're new and you haven't had a chance to meet many people and connect, I, I just hope you'll, you'll do it. Make the commitment to come back and enjoy lunch with us and get to know a few folks. It'd, it'd be a joy. I'd love to meet you. All right, open your Bibles to Proverbs 9, verse 10. We are in the third week of a new series in the book of Proverbs. It's how we're gonna start our summer, how we are starting our summer. Uh, as you're turning there, let me say this by way of context and introduction. When most people think of the, book, the, the Bible in general, they think, well, the Bible is a, a book of wisdom. The Bible is a wisdom book. That's kind of just the general idea out there in the world when we know it is much more than that. But it's not less than that. The Bible has a lot of wisdom, and so when you think about the, the Bible as a book of wisdom, you know, which is not untrue, although it's not the whole truth, but it's not untrue. Within the Bible, there are certain books that are particularly designated as wisdom books. There's a whole genre of literature in the Bible as the wisdom literature of the Bible. So in the Old Testament, you have books like Proverbs, which is what we're studying, books like Ecclesiastes, books like Job. In the New Testament, many people would say James is a wisdom book in the New Testament. So, you know, these books of the Bible, Bible collection of books, Books of the Bible are categorized in different genres. You actually have a genre called the wisdom literature of the Bible. Now, many people would say at the center of the wisdom literature of the Bible is the book of Proverbs. It's what most people think of first. It's kind of the the collection um, of wisdom. You know, all throughout that book of Proverbs, it's just the focus over and over and over is wisdom. Many people would say the center of the book of Proverbs thematically is the verse that we're studying today. Proverbs chapter nine, verse 10. So think about it this way. The center of the center of the center of the world's wisdom is the verse that we're studying today. The Bible wisdom book. Within the Bible, there's wisdom literature. Within the wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs. Within the book of Proverbs, Proverbs nine, verse 10, and especially the first line of this verse, which is where we're going to go. Now, maybe think of this verse a little bit like a a buried treasure chest in the heart of the earth, and it contains the most valuable gem of wisdom ever known to man. The problem is it's in a little bit of a lockbox to our modern Western ears. In other words, when we read it in just a moment, you might not think that's the most valuable gemstone of wisdom I've ever heard. But the purpose of today's message is to unlock that box and open it up and help it come to life. So now let's look at it together, Proverbs 9, verse 10. I'll read it, you'll see it on the screen, and, and if you have your Bible open, you can follow along as well. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This is the living word of God for us today. I mentioned we're really gonna focus primarily on that first line. I will say this, like most Hebrew poetry, this is written in parallelism. So the two lines work in parallel, and there's different ways that parallelism can work in Hebrew poetry, but most often, it's what's called synonymous parallelism. That just means the first line and the second line say the same thing using different words. So you can see how these two lines uh, line up. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, the lockbox that is this uh, verse, so to speak, I don't mean to say, oh, you know, you have to know Greek and Hebrew in order to understand the Bible. That's not where I'm going. No, no, I think our English translations typically are very good. In this case, however, it just so happens that there are three terms in this first line that are commonly misunderstood in our modern English. And I wanna just outline those for you because this is gonna kind of be the outline of our, of, our, of our message. I'm gonna talk about these. The first is... The fear of the Lord, that's one of the most misunderstood concepts in the Bible. In English, we think about this, in my opinion, all wrong, and we'll talk about that. So we're going to dig into that phrase. The next is the word beginning. It's such a simple word, but it's misleading if you don't think about it right in the context of this particular verse. And then, of course, the last one is wisdom. So maybe think about these three terms as the, the, the three dials on the combination lock, Okay, you're gonna spin one, spin two, spin three, and then we're gonna be able to open it up because you're gonna start to understand what this is really saying. So let's take them each, and I wanna go in reverse order. I wanna start with wisdom and then beginning and then land on the fear of the Lord as we walk through this verse. Okay, in modern English, when you think of wisdom, the first thing that comes to your mind probably is the practical application of knowledge to everyday life. Not a bad starting point, but doesn't go deep enough, at least when it comes to biblical wisdom. Okay, so let me rephrase that just so we can kind of have that as a starting point. The practical application of knowledge to everyday life. So it's one thing to know a lot, be book smart. It's another thing to be wise and actually use that knowledge in real life. We, we also use the phrase, you know, street wise, you know, someone that kind of knows how to survive. They know how to thrive in the real world, so to speak. Biblical wisdom is a lot deeper. And to, to understand biblical wisdom, you do have to know a little Hebrew, just one word, if you can understand just one word in Hebrew, the, the word that's translated into wisdom, it'll make this concept come to life for you. Now we've already done a little work in this word in week one of our series. Eric Hoffman was here and he introduced the series. If you were here, you learned a little bit about the word hokmah. Chokmah is the Hebrew word translated into wisdom in our English. So to understand biblical wisdom, you've got to understand the concept of hokmah, of wisdom from a Hebrew perspective. Eric showed you a clip from the Bible Project and they did such a great job of visually illustrating this Hebrew concept. I wanna show it to you again. I'm not gonna play the whole clip Eric showed, but just a little excerpt of the excerpt of the video that he showed. It'll get it back in your minds and for those of you that missed it, it'll catch you up. So here's the, here's the context before we play this video. What you need to know, this video is a part of a series the Bible Project did on the wisdom books of the Bible and the, the technique they used was to personify each of the books. In other words, give a personality to each of the wisdom books of the Bible. So for the book of Proverbs, they said, think about the book of Proverbs like a brilliant young teacher. We're going to pick it up right there, and you'll hear them talk about Hokma. So let's go ahead and play this video, please.
1: We're going to start by meeting the book of Proverbs, the brilliant young teacher. And she's not just smart. She's smart about everything, work, relationships, sex, spirituality. She has incredible insights, things you wouldn't see on your own. Yeah, she would be the perfect friend to have around when you need really specific advice. So what makes her so smart? Well, Proverbs can see things that most people don't see. She believes that there's an invisible creative force in the universe that can guide people in how they should live. And you can't see it, just like you can't see gravity, but it affects everything that we do. So what's this force? Well, in Hebrew, it's called chokhmah, and it usually gets translated into English as wisdom. It's an attribute of God that God used to create the world. And Hokmah has been woven into the fabric of things and how they work. So wherever people are making good or just or wise decisions, they're tapping into Hokmah. And whenever someone's making a bad decision, they're working against Hokmah. Right, or as it says in Proverbs chapter 1, the waywardness of fools will destroy them. But the one who listens to wisdom lives in security. So it's like a moral law of the universe. Yeah, it's a cause-effect pattern and no one can escape it. And Proverbs personifies all of this as a woman. Yeah, lady wisdom. Right, and she roams around the earth calling out, making herself available to anyone who's willing to listen to her and to learn. Which leads to the second thing Proverbs believes that anyone can access and interact with wisdom and use it to make a beautiful life for yourself or for others. You can create with it like a designer. Yes, in fact, Hochma in Hebrew isn't simply intellectual knowledge. The word is also used to describe a skilled artisan who excels at their craft, like woodworking or stonemasonry. So you show you possess Hochma when you put it to work and develop the skill of making a good life. We're gonna
0: pause it right there. Wisdom, as they defined it, is an attribute of God that God used to create the world. That's what the, the Old Testament Hebrew worldview, the biblical worldview that they understood. And what the video goes on to say, you show you possess Hokmah when you put it to work and develop the skill of making a good life. So this starts to, you know, maybe uh, in, enrich the way we think about this idea of, of wisdom. Now, you know, we show these videos and, and obviously we, we really like the Bible Project. We show their videos from time to time here. And often you might wonder, well, where are they getting this stuff from? You know, I mean, some of this stuff seems, like well, I've never heard this before. Uh, Tim Mackey, who's the theologian that's part of that project, he is really a excellent theologian. And as I've listened to their podcasts and watched their videos, and then I've I've gone back and referenced the sources that they're using, what what I've actually found is this is based on very good evangelical scholarship. So I wanna quote to you from Bruce Waltke. Bruce Waltke is an Old Testament scholar. He he wrote the preeminent commentary on the book of Proverbs, at least from a conservative Christian perspective. It's a massive two-volume commentary. And here's what Bruce Waltke says about Hokma says, Hokma or wisdom, is difficult to define since it is a totalizing concept that seeks to bring all of life's activities into harmony with God's created order. It's a really good way to think about wisdom. All of life's activities in harmony with God's created order. He goes on to say, at its core is the belief that God made the world in, with, and by wisdom. The wise, therefore, seek to orient all their being and actions to conform to this wisdom. All right, so it's this idea, and I like the way the Bible Project illustrated it with this thread that's going through, and you can grab onto that thread and use the wisdom of God to, to create and, and make decisions and live, and you're walking in harmony with God's created order. So let's summarize, and then I'll put on the screen a very simple definition of wisdom, you know, as we're we're turning this first dial on our combination lock this morning to understand this key concept. As creator, God designed the world and everything in it, including you and me, to flourish in a certain way. Wisdom is discovering and living out that way. So here's an easy short definition we'll put on the screen for wisdom. Life lived in harmony with God's design. It's an easy way to think about wisdom. Wisdom is life lived in harmony with God's design. It's, it's cutting with the grain of the wood because God designed the wood to be cut in a certain direction, you see, to use another Metaphor. We'll just leave this on the screen for a couple of minutes. I wanna talk about it a little bit more if, if you could. Now, here is what you need to know. And, and what I'm about to say is so important for you to understand wisdom and, and because you'll never desire wisdom if you don't grasp what I'm about to say. Living life in harmony with God's design leads you to what you most want in life. Living life in harmony with God's design leads you to fullness of life. This is what the wisdom literature of the Bible teaches. Living life in harmony with God's design leads you to the good life. And, you know, there's all kinds of ways of talking about that, the, the, the good life out there. Some call it happiness, others call it thriving. Some people might say living with no regrets. Some people, you know, would say flourishing or, or peace or living life to the full. It's what every human being wants. Whether they believe in God or not believe in God, it's what every human being wants. It's what we're all going after. This is why the writers of Proverbs say over and over, seek wisdom, search for it like God. Gold or silver, trade everything you have to find it. Why is it that valuable? Because it leads to fullness of life, it leads to the things that you most want in life. And, and, you know, the the writers of the, the wisdom literature talk about this unapologetically. I mean, Solomon and the other writers of Proverbs are basically, if you want to have long-term financial success, this is the way you should go. Now, we would say, well, long-term financial success isn't ultimate, and that's absolutely true. But also, if you wanna have healthy relationships, this is the way you should go. You know, if you, if you wanna prolong your life and, 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 and maximize your chances of living long and thriving on the earth, this is the way you should go. Proverbs talk about all, all of this. It's practical wisdom and it's all moving toward fullness of life. But what you have to understand is true fullness of life comes from living life in harmony with God's design. That means recognizing there is a designer and being willing to submit to his design. And that's a teaser for where this is all going. All right, so there's, there's the first dial on the lock, so to speak. You have to understand it's life lived in harmony with God's design. It's gonna lead you to fullness of life which is what every human being most wants. That's the concept of wisdom. So seek it, search for it. Be willing to trade everything you have for it. That's what the Bible would say about wisdom. Now, let's go on to the next little term here, uh, the word beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Remember, we're working backwards through this. This doesn't need much time. I won't spend long on it. Beginning in this context, is not the thing you start with and then graduate beyond and leave behind. Beginning in this context is like the beginning of a river. It's like the spring that forms the river. The spring is the beginning of the river in the sense that it is the source. Without the spring, there is no river. In fact, the river itself, you could say, is the spring Down the line. So when it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning, I want you to understand it more like the source or the foundation or or, or this fundamental principle. In fact, that's how I wanna define it this morning. The foundation, the source, or the fundamental principle of a thing. So again, commentator Bruce Waltke is quite helpful with this. Here's what he says. What the alphabet is to reading, what notes are to music, What numerals are to mathematics, the fear of the Lord is to gaining wisdom. So we tend to think of our ABCs as you know, you learn that in kindergarten and then you move beyond it. Anytime you read, you're still in the ABCs. You never graduate beyond the ABCs. You're still utilizing. They're the foundation. Um, maybe a better analogy, because we've got so many musicians and songwriters and music people in the room, is, is the music notes that he talks about. I think that's a great analogy. You never move beyond notes. In order to make music, you have to have notes. And, and beautiful music is by arranging the notes in a context and in an order and a rhythm that, that uh, um, um, speaks to people. Now, you can start to see how all this is coming together. Wisdom, you put this back on the screen if you don't mind, uh, Michael. Wisdom, life lived in harmony with God's design, beginning the foundation source or fundamental principle. And, And so what it's saying is there is a source, there is a fundamental principle for all of life, which leads you to the good life. Do you wanna know what that foundation principle is? Do you wanna know what the source is, the starting point, the spring that creates the river? The fear of the Lord the fear of the Lord. So let's turn our attention to this final phrase. Uh, Eventually I will put a definition on there, but not yet. So go ahead and and take that off the screen. I'll come back to it. The concept phrase fear of the Lord appears 15 times in the book of Proverbs alone. It's very significant. It occurs many, many times beyond that in the Bible. It's probably not an exaggeration to say it's one of the most important concepts in the Bible. It's also not an exaggeration to say it's one of the most misunderstood. Our English language doesn't do us a lot of favors here. There is a reason why the Hebrew is translated into English fear, and we'll talk about that, so it's not completely 180 degrees off, but it doesn't do us a whole lot of favors. The first thing people think when they hear the word fear and even fear of the Lord is they they think about being afraid of God. God's gonna get me. If I don't toe the line, God, you know, God's gonna bring some disaster on my life. You know, I, I need to fear the Lord and be afraid because any moment in time, he could zap me. You know? It's that idea of the cosmic God with the bolt of lightning coming down, you know? figuratively speaking. In some ways, that's not quite the opposite, but, but almost the opposite of what the idea is in Hebrew. Let me tease this out a little bit. I'm afraid of snakes, okay? I'm not, I'm not afraid to admit, like I, I'm like a little baby when it comes to snakes. My girls know this, you know? So uh, anytime I see a snake, which fortunately is not that often, you know, we don't live on a bunch of land, all right? So but anytime I see a, a, a snake, I, I'm, I'm not moving toward that snake. I'm, I'm turning around and running from that snake as fast as possible. In fact, I was thinking about this. I wasn't planning on telling this story, but it's kind of funny. When we first moved here to this area, I was with some friends um, from Fellowship, and we were at Liberty Park playing disc golf. I don't know how many disc golfers there are out there. But we had just seen a snake. I don't know, around the sixth or seventh hole or something. And we just saw a snake. It was kind of crawling up through the grass, kind of near where this guy had his, had his disc laying on the ground. And we were all like, oh and I was keeping my distance this. Well, I was the next person to, to toss my disc. And so I'm right there, and I know like that snake is moving away. He's probably 50, 75 feet from me. He's moving away, but he's still on my mind. And the guys around me know this. And so I've got my disc like this, You know, it's a shorter, it's like a putt. So this is what you do with a putt. You go like this. And I've got my disc like this, and, and the guy over here in my peripheral, he, right when I'm about to throw the disc, he yells out, Snake on the disc! <laughs> Which makes no sense at all. <laughs> How would there be a snake on the disc? And I, I'm even looking at the disc, and I know there's not a snake on the disc. But as soon as he says, snake on the disc, I went, bah! <laughs> and I went that direction, and my disc went six inches. No. When you fear something like that, you run away from it, not move toward it. The fear of the Lord is a relational posture toward God that draws you toward him, not away from him. Let's talk about how this played out in the ancient Hebrew culture. Men and women of the Bible who were said to fear the Lord were men and women who had a relationship with Yahweh. It was said of Moses, it was said of, no, it was said of all these men and women of the Bible, they feared God. What did that mean? That they were literally afraid of him? No, no, that they were running away from him, afraid he was gonna zap him? No, 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 it meant they actually had a relationship with, they believed in him. So belief is the starting place of the biblical concept of fear of the Lord. Now, does it carry the idea of a healthy fear? Absolutely, because you're talking about relating to the God of the universe, the all-powerful creator of heaven and earth, the God of the storm. With that kind of massive power, how can you not relate to God with a healthy amount of respect, and that is part of what the term conveys. But, but much more than the idea of terror, it's the idea of humility. It's actually moving toward God with a humble posture, not running away from him in terror and fear. This is the concept of fear of the Lord. So think about it this way. When Jesus comes on the earth, Gentiles, non-Jews, who believed in Yahweh, the one true God, the God of the Hebrews, were called God-fearers, They were the exception, most pagans or most Gentiles out there indifferent to the God of the Hebrews, but these Gentiles had moved toward the God of the Hebrews and were, as best as they knew how, relating to him, worshiping him, honoring him. The fear of the Lord is a relational posture where you move toward, yes, with humility, but you move toward God, not away from God. To fear God in the biblical sense is to move toward him, not away from him. It means acknowledging him as creator. Now that means you also acknowledge yourself as creation. So there's that humility again. But it's, it's, Much more of a relational posture than it is a a terror, that it is a a fear in the way that we usually think about in English. Here's another way to think about it. We're just kind of circling this concept several times because I'm trying to, to create a new category in your mind for what this means. Fearing the Lord means finding your place in God's world. Finding your proper place in God's world, have you ever thought about that? Does God even notice me? Does God care about me? Does God love me? Is God angry at me? Fearing the Lord is moving toward God with a proper relational posture. In other words, creation to creator, yes. Citizen to sovereign, yes. But also, as the Bible says over and over, dependent child to loving Heavenly Father, So fearing the Lord is taking in this humble relational posture toward God. It means recognizing both. God is God and I am not, but also the God who is loves the human who I am. Or as I heard recently, fearing God is like standing next to the ocean and being reminded of your blessed smallness. So here's the definition, if we could put our our image back on the screen or the slide back on the screen. The definition that I wanna take you to for the fear of the Lord is this, a relational posture of worship and submission. Fear the Lord from a biblical perspective is a relational posture. Maybe the most important word in that definition is relational. It's it's, uh, rightly orienting yourself to God. And if you're gonna rightly orient yourself to the creator of you and the creator of the universe, that's gonna result in two things. It's gonna result in worship and it's gonna result in submission. Let me pull two threads of those two words just really briefly. You're gonna worship whatever you believe holds the most life for you. You're gonna naturally worship things in your life that you believe have life gives, why people worship a lot of wrong things, a lot of bad things. They're like, I'm gonna find life in that hobby. I'm gonna find life in that relationship. I'm gonna find life in that endeavor, that dream. They start to worship those things. They give themselves fully to those things. You're gonna worship whatever object or person you believe holds fullness of life for you. Let's talk about the word submission. You will submit to the object or person that you trust you will never submit to a person or a concept that you don't trust. You know, that's why right now people have such a hard time submitting to institutions and submitting to authority of all kinds, because we're just, who can we trust? Can I trust the government? Can I trust the police force? Can I trust the big company? Can I trust the church? You see, the question is, do you believe, can you trust God? That gets to the heart of it, doesn't it? Here's one way to think about this. And and, and this is where I wanna start putting all the pieces of this together, okay? If wisdom, life lived in harmony with God's design, is the key to fullness of life, And the foundation or source of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Then, in a very practical way, the trajectory of your life will come down to whether or not you fear the Lord. Which is another way of asking do you trust the Lord? Here's just another way to think about it, and I'll put this statement on the screen. It's kind of a big idea beginning to, to apply this to our lives. Arguably, the most important thing about your life is how you relate to God. How you relate to God. Now there's two ways you could interpret that, and I left it um, ambiguous both ways. So the first is how you relate to God in terms of your eternal destiny. Your eternal destiny will come down to whether or not you have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That that is all it's gonna come down to. It's not gonna come down to like how many good things you did in your life compared to how many bad things you did in your life. It's not gonna come down to how much religious activity you had. It's not gonna come down to your good intentions. Your eternal destiny will come down to whether or not you had a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So in the eternal sense, fullness of life results in fearing the Lord. But there's another category of this, and and this is where Proverbs is primarily speaking to. From a wisdom standpoint, fullness of life here on earth will also come down to how you relate to God. Fullness of life here on earth will come down to how you orient yourself to God on a daily basis. This is what the wisdom literature is teaching you. How do you orient yourself to God in all your decisions? Now, let me explain this, because this is about to get, I hope, very practical. Every day you make hundreds of decisions. Thousands, I'm sure. But I'm really thinking primarily of conscious decisions that you make. Uh, some, some of them are really small. So for example, um, you're gonna have to decide, uh, are you gonna come to the picnic? You're not. You know, if you don't come to the picnic, what are you gonna eat for lunch? Where are you gonna go? Then maybe later on, how to spend your afternoon. Um, what you're gonna put in front of your eyes, on your screen, your screens. Uh, what time you'll go to bed tonight. And These are all some of the decisions that we're all going to make this afternoon. So now many of our decisions every day we make are inconsequential and tiny. Others have enormous consequences for yourself and others for better or worse. Do you realize that you could ruin your life and lives of others around you with just one or two Terrible decisions. You have that power. Have you ever thought about the fact that every decision you make, every decision you consciously make, is being made from a particular orientation as it relates to you and God? Every decision you make is being made from a particular orientation as it relates to you and God. And I think there's only three possible orientations. You're either operating in conscious submission to God, conscious rebellion against God, or thoughtless indifference toward God. I think those are the only three choices. Of all the hundreds of decisions that you make on a daily basis, what if you started making more of those from a posture of conscious submission to God? What in your life would change? What the scripture is telling you, the Bible as a whole, the book of Proverbs as a whole, And the the center, the center, the center of, of the world's wisdom right here, Proverbs 9, verse 10. What the scripture is telling us is that every decision we make from a posture of submission to the God of the universe moves us closer and closer to fullness of life because we're operating in harmony with God himself. You're operating in harmony with the one who is life. So if you desire life, operate in harmony with the one who created it, who sustains it, who is the source of it. Why don't we make all of our decisions this way? Because we think we know better. Because we think we know what will lead us to fullness of life. So that's fine for the Hebrew people. That's fine for those Bible people. I think I know what's gonna lead me to, I know my taste. I know my appetites. I know my desires. We think we know hokmah path to fullness of life for us. We are not humble enough. We are not humble enough to come into a right relationship with God as creation, creator, dependent child, loving Heavenly Father, posture of trust. So here's where most of us are. Most of us, um, we, we make decisions hardly with the thought of God. And this is true for me. I mean, the, the only decisions I really consciously think about God is like massive decisions I know have big implications, and then I'll start praying. You know, can I just, even as a pastor, can I just admit that to you? But most of my decisions, most of my day is just lived kind of in that category of just sort of thoughtless, you know, not even thinking about God all that much as I make decisions. Why is that? May I suggest that we, we live primarily without thinking about God because He only has a small corner of our hearts? And what the Bible would speak to you this morning through this text is that will not do. Not, not if your, your target is, is fullness of life, you know? Not, not if your target is, is the, the, the eternal kind of life that God has in store for you or the abundant life that Jesus talked about. Uh, it won't do to let God have just a corner of our hearts. And, and what is the barrier of that? I think it's trust. And so I'm just gonna land the plane with trust. The irony of fearing the Lord is that you will never fear God until you deeply trust him. If I trusted snakes, I might move toward one Actually fearing God means moving toward him, not away from him, and you will never do that in the true sense until you deeply believe he loves you unconditionally, even unreasonably. So I want you to take out the elements of the Lord's Supper, and you can go ahead and start opening the the little bread wafer at the top. This is not like sermon done, now let's tag on the Lord's Supper. This is a part of the message. I wanna connect the dots to you. We're, we're gonna put the message into practice right now through this practice, and I'm glad to see some, some of you going out there. If you didn't get the Lord's Supper and, and you wanna join us in the Lord's Supper, for, it's for anyone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ. Please go out into the, uh, the arcade there and you can just grab one of these and, and come back in. So with this in your hand, I just wanna keep teaching for a couple minutes and just think about this together and then we'll, we'll practice this as a body. These elements are for you this morning a very tangible expression of God's love. That's what they represent, a very tangible expression of the love of God for you. I want you to think about for just a moment how these elements, came to be in your hands. And I'm not talking just about well, someone set them on the table and I picked them up and then there was a producer and a supply truck and supply chain. I'm not talking about all that. I'm going back way before that. How did these elements come to be in your hands? Number one, Jesus had to die. Jesus had to give his life and spill his blood. Number two, there needed to be a community of faith who put their trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus and began to embody that, embody their faith through this practice. And number three, they had to pass that on to the generation underneath them, a community of faith, trusting fully in the love of God for them, represented by the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ. Then that generation, They had to believe it, had to put faith in it, and then pass on to the next generation, a new generation of faith, putting their trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Then that generation would go to the next generation. I don't know how many generations 2,000 years takes, a lot. And now it has come into your hands. There's a reason that you have this. God chose you to hold these elements right now. Jesus saw you in 2021, and he said, for that one, Yes, and all the other ones that will hold these elements and remember and put their trust in me. But for that one, I'm giving my body and I'm shedding my blood. And that is how this came to be in your hands this morning. When love came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, he did what you could never do. And that is he fully feared the Lord. With his whole heart, he worshiped, and he submitted to his Father in heaven. And even in his Godness, Jesus Christ submitted, he feared the, the Lord. He, he, he worked himself out into a relational posture with the Father, a relational posture of worship and submission. That's why he went to the cross. How is it possible for Jesus to do that? Because he knew the Father's love for him. And so he could trust the Father. So these elements that we're about to partake together, they are a tangible expression of the love of Christ for you that is meant to stir you to trust the God of the universe so that you will make decisions in alignment with his desire for you rather than against. So we now take the bread, we hold it in our hands, we remember this is representative of the body of Jesus Christ that was broken for you in a very personal and profound way. Let it build your trust in God as you remember. Let us eat The cup that you hold in your hands It represents the shed blood of Jesus for you and it also represents the unconditional and perfect love of God for you who did not spare his own son but freely gave for you. If you believe in that kind of love, you will take a step toward him, not away from him. Let us drink Father, thank you for giving us this tangible sign, this literal taste. Would you help our minds to conceive and grasp and realize the implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus for us and may it build in us a faith, a trust, so that we would move toward you.